right, this is Vanessa Van Olstein. And this is art, I swear. And this is part two of our interview with uh, Nestor Enrique Zaragoitia. How's it going, Nez? Uh, good. Good. Not bad at all. I remember, I remember in our art class, like, to pass, you had to learn how to spell your last name. And I had to, uh, <clears throat> I'm sorry, what was that? I remember in our uh, art class that you taught uh, to pass, we had to learn how to spell your last name. Uh, when I was trying to get you guys to be able to write it? Yeah, you're like, you have to be able to spell it right or you fail. Yeah, and that made everybody. <laughs> yeah, that was. A few people uh, could could not, um, but um, well, my name is really hard, and uh, it's it's hard because it comes from Basque country, which is one of the Basque people. Uh, you might know, or in the Pyrenees mountain, which is the mountain range that separates France and Spain, and it's just really interesting because their language uh, has nothing to do with Indo-European. Uh, it's, it's a language of its own. Uh, so it's, people study it, linguists study it all the time, um, but still can't find where the root is. Um, so obviously what, what they think is that it's the people that moved to the air to come to Europe the Indo-Europeans that moved there eventually and started all the languages that are in Euro European language, the classic ones. So my last name is the Basque word. <laughs> so, <clears throat> yeah, that's fascinating. I didn't, I didn't even know about that region until I met you, and I, you know, you hear about it a little bit, but not real in depth. I also want to apologize if there's weird noises going on. I live under an airport, so. <laughs> I'm like, oh, this is. Look out! I live near the uh, Buffalo Airport. There you go. I know what that's about. There's a little hobby airport, like literally half a mile from my apartment, called the Addison Airport, and they like to take off and land over the apartments with their dampers on, so it's like extra loud. And I'm like, thank you guys, thank you. Ouch. Yeah. So, in our previous podcast, we kind of talked about uh, your early life as a, like, a Cuban refugee, I think that's safe to say, and that you grew up in New York during what was probably the best time ever to live in New York City. <laughs> I'm biased, I'm just going to say that. Um, so, you hurt your hand, and that kind of ended your career as a guitar player, and you thought you'd go back to school... And you'd made this deal with yourself that if you didn't do music, you would do art. So was that like your immediate thing? Did you like miss a beat? Like, I'm going to go back to school for art. Or did you like take some time to think about it? <clears throat> no. Um, well, this is how I look at it. Um, I'm usually, I make up my mind very quickly. Um, but what happened was typical of my life is that on my lap fell um, this job as an assistant <laughs> photographer um, for a fashion <clears throat> for a fashion uh, uh, photographer, and uh, you might ask, uh, well, did you photograph? And, I, and the story is, is that yeah, somebody gave me a camera uh, when I was around 19, and uh, uh, it was an Icon F, which for people that are into F2, uh, <laughs> for people that know photography. 
uh, from that period also. Um, that was the desired uh, camera. Anyway, so I, I got involved with that while I was going to school. I was paying my rent. Uh, it was very tough. It's typical in New York where I had a full-time job in the daytime when I went to school at night. But when I went to school, I really went to school to become a writer. <laughs> so uh, I was going to be an English major. And then I took a painting class. <laughs> and that was the end. That was it. You're like... I, uh, that was it. I mean, I was hooked once again. And I remember my uh, my agreement. And uh, that's where I went. So that's Hunter College. And Hunter, this is New York. Uh, once again, you know, these incredible things of New York City. Uh, the Hunter College uh, was, and still is, is um, an incredibly good college, um, but also in the art department and the music department, the, the teachers are famous. So you're learning from real famous people, uh, people that are involved in the art world. And so these were the people that I was um, studying uh, with. I actually took uh, photography classes with uh, Roy Nicaragua, who uh, uh, still is, he passed away, but um, <clears throat> was one of the great um, photographers. He's African-American and great photographers from the second uh, coming of the Harlem Renaissance. And um, he was the chair of my committee. I immediately, without thinking, without batting an eye, I went into the BFA program, the Bachelor of Fine Arts program, because I knew that a BA it, it, it was not as good as if you get a BFA. Uh, it means that you're not kidding. You're into the arts. Uh, you're not messing around. So I did that there, and then I moved to I did I um, I went and did my graduate and postgrad uh, work in uh, University of Wisconsin which was wonderful. Uh, that was uh, really where I uh, really bloomed. Because, you know, in graduate school, they give you a studio, your own studio. Yes. So I lived in my studio. <laughs> Did you literally yeah. live in your studio? I've known artists that have done that. I actually had to live in mine for yeah. a little while. <laughs> I, well, no, I mean, I bought a house when I got there. I was smart enough to do that. Uh, I wanted to have money because graduate school, uh, graduate students have no money. Yeah. At all. I don't know any that had money, except for the rich kids. And so you're always like, you know, you're always like uh, eating, um, whatchamacallit, uh, ramen noodles. Yes. <laughs> and drinking a lot of coffee. <laughs> all the things that are cheap. If I... And, uh, and you know, uh, coffee is uh, the drug of preference uh, of artists, you know, as far as I'm concerned. I've got a cup so next I to me did. right I now. Lived, I lived in my... What was it? I said I have a cup next to me right now. <laughs> so uh, I did. I basically lived there. And then I have this problem, which is I'm a procrastinator big time. So then I would have to do these uh, massive... <clears throat> time uh, frames where uh, I would work all day for three days because I had uh, projects due or or I was showing somewhere. <laughs> so um, this happens to me even to today where, uh, I, you know, I have a, uh, I had one particular one that just recently happened was I had a, a solo show and I was going to put in 
uh, you know, I gave myself this. I told them, you know, oh, I'm going to have 20 pieces. <laughs> so I put it off. <laughs> until I said, oh, yeah, I got to do this. Oh, man. See, that's... <laughs> and, of course, I made it. But, uh, but, you know, I came out of it with, like, red eyes, you know? I bet. <laughs> You know, and shaking hands from the coffee. You know, so. so what was the body of work that got you into grad school? Because to apply to grad school, you have to have a portfolio of about, uh, I would say, 10 to 15 pieces that are kind of cohesive and point you in a direction. So where where were you at that point? Okay. <laughs> it's kind of funny because um, I was doing painting. Um, that's where I went into uh, and then I got, uh, and then I had this thing where I took a uh, sculpture class <laughs> yeah. in New York College, and uh, my brain just uh, exploded. And what I started to do was carve wood. And then out of carving wood, one day I bought a piece of um, marble, and um, and then I was lost in in that. And so I started carving, and so I did all these carvings and very conceptual also uh, woodwork and that's I, and a couple of paintings right that I, I, I thought were good enough and that that was my portfolio in those days um, yeah what they asked for was 20 slides and uh, you had to write um, you know your um, your <clears throat> give them your CV uh, of um, you know all the places you've shown yeah a CV so, is like an artist resume yeah Correct, uh, and um, and uh, what you go and then your artist statement, which was more important probably than anything else, which is when you tell them what it's about, what you're about, you know, mm-hmm. what, what's your vision. Um, so when I um, I just submitted that to uh, actually I think I submitted it to two universities, but the one I was looking for was uh, the University of Wisconsin, and uh, they accepted it. And I went into the MFA program there, so which was, uh, as I said before, was amazing. Uh, just an amazing experience. So very diverse. Uh, you know, I had never gone to school with Native Americans, and their art was uh, unbelievable. Very rooted in their identity, but very progressive as artwork, uh, as the art world uh, was at that time. And so. And so, I, you know, once again, I did the same thing. I was procrastinated to hell. And, um, and I think, you know, my personal opinion is I think that I've made my work better. Uh, I, I have very little time to rethink something. I always drew the pieces before I made them. And I also, um, because I worked at that point in found objects, I also had an incredible collection of uh, things. <laughs> it was like my physical palette. And so in my studio, it was like just full of everything with painting and uh, and sculpture and objects. And so my studio was a wreck, <laughs> as it should be. And any artist's studio should be a wreck. I don't know. Like I did a I did a podca- podcast on Mondrian, and apparently that guy was just meticulous. But everybody's different. There's I no know. right or wrong way to work. No, there isn't, and um, I certainly know a lot of artists that are like, uh, don't touch that, yeah. don't change it, <laughs> you know, kind of people. We're all neurotic, I mean, let's face it, so uh, we're all like, not, not well. <laughs> yeah. We 
Argento, who's the uh, Italian director Dario Argento's daughter, saying that there has to be something wrong with you for you want to want the fame that comes with being an actress. And uh, I'm paraphrasing, but it's like I feel like that applies to all creative fields. Like you, you gotta be, you have to at least be very daring to attempt to make a living at this. Absolutely. Um, you put yourself out, and then you say, "What am I doing?" <laughs> Every so often, when you can't eat, you know, you go, what am I doing? Yeah, you're like, <laughs> if I never have another hot dog, it will not be <laughs> a tragedy. Because <laughs> hot dogs are cheap. Um, I do know one of the things you're really passionate about is sketching, and you mentioned drawing before you uh, create something. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um... I mean, not always do I work that way, and uh, certainly I think I, I pretty much work the other way as much as drawing, but uh, but one of the things about drawing is, is that I can identify um, specifically what I'm about to do. Uh, you probably hear my dog, right? Yeah. Hi, doggy. <laughs> so, um, so what I do is I get, a, I get an idea of what the piece is going to be. I sometimes even have the... the loose components of what I think I'm going to do. But then I, I, I work it out in, in the actual drawings. And uh, what I do with the drawings is uh, I start measuring out the actual dimensions of what I'm making, especially when I'm making things that are very big. Um, there's some of, some of the things that I construct are 12 feet, 15 feet high. So you have to be pretty precise. I can be loose about it, but you have to be pretty precise about uh, how you're going to make certain structures. Um, so, and that's kind of the way I do it. I, I don't think it's incredibly creative to do pre-drawings, so you have to pretty much have worked out somewhat, you know, where you're headed. Um, because once you start, uh, at least for me, once you start drawing and plotting this thing out, um, it just... Um, it loses that uh, spontaneity. Mm -hmm. And it's when you say found objects, just to clarify for people that maybe don't know what that is, that's you. It's kind of what it sounds like. You take things from your environment, wherever you may find them, and then combine them in a way that gives them uh, new meaning. And is there a way that you approach your method there, or do you just kind of believe in happy accidents, to quote Bob Ross? You know, not at all. Uh, I mean, sometimes, you know, it's like any artist, you know, sometimes as you're going along, uh, there are things that happen that you actually didn't mean to, but uh, they fall into place, and uh, and it's wonderful. You know, that's part of that uh, serendipity, you know, of art uh, sometimes. But um, I have to tell you that this is why I was an artist since a long time ago. I, I drew and I sculpted when I was, since I was um, six, uh, so I, literally, uh, like um, you know, I made, made things out of clay, and uh, one point I made King Kong when I was in Cuba. <laughs> so, but all the time that I was in music, I was looking at these objects that attracted my attention, and sometimes I found them in the streets of New York City, and they could be anything. It could be like a, 
burnt out doll or a, or a um, little object that's been flattened by a car, uh, things like that, and I just kept them in boxes. And so that's kind of it. And sometimes I go to uh, flea markets. Uh, sometimes I also go um, to universities. Have uh, Usually it is, uh, every so often they have these sales of um, things that they don't, uh, that they no longer use, you know, uh, like in the science speakers and things like that. And so I would buy those, but also I just find them, you know, uh, in all kinds of different places, people throwing out things, um, you know, and the dumpster uh, diving. <laughs> you're like, the, you're like um, super thrift shopper. <laughs> and, and I have a rule. And my rule is you don't spend more than $5 for anything. <laughs> because if you spend, in my, in my world, if you spend something, if you spend more than five dollars, uh, then it becomes precious, and you don't want it to become precious. Um, but the idea is this for me, and is that all these objects have a history. So let's say you're talking about a toothbrush. So, you know, you it was made so that you can clean your teeth. Uh, so that history is never going to go away. And then I repurpose um, the meaning of that thing. Um, particular thing, but you as the as the um, audience, um, when you see it, you can't help but make that association. So it, there's a duality there, what I mean and what the thing uh, originally was meant to be. And they just, in my world, they don't uh, disappear. They're kind of like uh, the spirit aspect of, uh, of, these, um, of these found objects. And I feel like that kind of I would use the word recontextualization is very important to art after 1980-ish, like circa 1980, because what happens at that point is postmodernism, where we, we've had some previous podcasts about what modern art actually is, and I, I feel like after 1980, instead of trying to constantly make something new, we kind of accepted that that's hit its limit, and it's okay to like go back and look at things and ascribe this like value that is both personal to the artist but also has this line through art history yeah um, um found, yeah the historical aspect the whole found object thing is really you really got to look at the Duchamp, uh, marcel Duchamp, and all that early stuff that he did in the early 1900s uh and this whole rethinking of what is art and what is and what you know material wise then certainly the other uh, great photo found object is uh, uh, Cornell Joseph Cornell when he made those boxes and certainly you know like any artist uh, that works in, in this um, mode you know has to have to give credit to these people uh, but then there's also, with me, for instance, then there's also the tradition uh, from Africa. So uh, where they do things like this for religious reasons. And we're, um, uh, and traditionally, uh, historically, they, they do things that are a combination of different materials. So I'm also guided by, by that. I think also that you, what you have to do with these things uh, in, this, in this era to make it your own is that you have to have your own uh, sensibilities for it. Uh, you, in the 
this era, identity is very important. Uh, so identity was always important to me as far as the work. Um, so here and there, I delve into my historical background. And my historical background is being Cuban and uh, growing up with uh, Afro-Cuban um, culture. And um, I'm also historically come from uh, mixed races uh, of African uh, descent and uh, Spaniard uh, descent, which is very interesting. And so I'm very, very influenced by those uh, things and religion here and there. But then I also make this art that uh, it's not connected to any of this. Uh, I've also uh, gotten into a thing where I incorporate uh, painting with uh, with these uh, sculpt sculptural work, and that's kind of like where I'm at right now, so, which, which I like quite a bit. And I remember. Uh, oh, go ahead. No, I'm not. You know, I feel very, very strongly that uh, that it's uh, African uh, and Africa, West Africa specifically, Nigeria specifically, mm -hmm. Yoruba people specifically. Those are the things that are actually have taken an incredible influence in my work. That's interesting. I uh, I have a rescue ball python. If I have a ton of reptiles, um, but the ball python was kind of badly abused. I'd never really wanted one, but it was one of those cases where it needed me. Um, and I, I started researching them after I got her because I wanted to make sure I took care of her well enough. And then I saw that she was from, they're kind of from West Africa. And that there's this big spiritual component to those snakes. So I've actually been researching like uh, like the Benin python cults and how the Dahomey people, like the kings would wear ball pythons or royal pythons uh, around their necks as necklaces. And that there's this like like rich secret kind of uh, like history to this animal that's like just really common and kind of unappreciated in some ways in the reptile trade. Yeah, um, well, there's um, yes, in West Africa you have a lot of uh, uh, different people with different um, exposures and, and beliefs in these things. You have to realize that these are real animals. Um, that they historically have lived with, you know. Yes. Um, so they have their own meanings. There's certainly a very strong religious uh, component uh, to it. But um, in West Africa, they believe in duality. Uh, duality is a very powerful thing. So, for instance, if you uh, have some aspect of duality, then it, what it means is that you, you're powerful as an individual or as an animal, for instance. Um, so... Uh, if you have uh, snakes that are um, that can go on land and on, in the water, that's a duality. So then that becomes very strong. Uh, salamanders are another example which gets used quite a bit. Uh, mudfish, for instance, at one point um, uh, um, and, and still are to, to a lesser degree, uh, were important because they could deal with the earth and and uh, water, things like that. Um, then they become very very powerful symbols of uh, these uh, entities that can deal with both realms. Uh, and because of that, spiritually, they're very, very powerful. So, I mean, that's part of like what you're seeing with the snakes, you know. Um, it, you know, when uh, Europeans came across these things, it was very misunderstood. And that's where you get this uh, 
this perception that this is all black magic and devil worship. <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, we did that to... I say we, uh, people of European heritage, our ancestors, have done that to so much of the world. Absolutely. Like, we, we've been doing some podcasts on uh, pre-Columbian art, and it's like, you know, why do we not know anything about this? Well, conquistadors kind of came in and burned everything for Jesus, you know? It, and it's, and we even talked about... Yeah, yeah, a little bit. It's I, I, I assume you kind of identify as a person of color. I don't want to be rude. I'm sorry. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, I mean that's uh, historically uh, my background. Yeah. Let me tell you this about me, and is that I have I come from uh, uh, my father comes from twelve children, a lot of children. Wow. Yeah. Um, very Catholic. <laughs> But um, I talked about like is that I have this um, um, historical uh, genetic connection with uh, Africans and uh, Spaniards and Cubans and slaves and slave owners and all this kind of stuff. Well, one of the things that's interesting, this is how, how close genetically I am to it. Uh, out of those 12 children, there's, uh, there are twins, uh, my uncle and my aunt, one, one of my uncles and aunts. And um, they were born, you know, uh, not at the same time, obviously, but, you know, uh, in the same period. And one is white, spanking white, and the other one spanking black. Wow. So, and so you see how close I am to, to, to that connection. Um, so, um, you know, and then in Cuba, the West African people, the Yoruba people are incredibly influential uh, culturally, uh, just as much as uh, white culture. So I grew up with that. I grew up with two religions, uh, which is the African religion and uh, of Ife, and the Cuban religion of Catholicism. So, and they didn't conflict with each other, which they don't now either uh, in Cuba. So that's where all that comes from. And then, you know, like when I started doing art, is probably most artists do, they, there's a certain amount, a uh, certain level of uh, exploration as to your identity and your past. So that hit me pretty, pretty quickly. And now I've kind of like exercised it out of my system. <laughs> so I'm doing much more, I do much more art for art's sake right now. Interesting. So your work shifted more to just, uh, is it more abstract now or how has it changed? No, I have a lot. You know, like the painting pieces that I do. By the way, what I do is I paint on uh, traditional, uh, very traditional. I paint in oil and on canvas uh, and gessoed on canvas. And then what I do afterwards is I cut them out, literally. And then I back them up with, um, like, masonite. I cut that out. And so that they can be, uh, I, I make these frames that have depth. And so then I place them in there so that they actually play with uh, shadows and things like that from the uh, uh, exhibition, the gallery. Um, but then I use a lot of um, just found objects. So that makes it abstract. So for instance, uh, I would put them in the background, uh, create texture, um, uh, things like that. Uh, maybe some kind of subtle meaning that is um, open to interpretation. And that's kind of what I'm doing there. But the, the, the actual 
canvas paintings are figurative, totally figurative. So one of our previous podcast subjects was Louise Nevelson. Do you feel a kinship to her with how she does work or? Uh, You know, I studied her. These are, you know, being an academic, of course, I am teaching art um, and art history, uh, which is which is a lot of what I do now, but I also was doing art appreciation and things like that. I certainly looked at it and I looked at her woodwork and uh, the way she handled it. And uh, it certainly made an incredible impact uh, on me. And so, and I would say, you know, that's in the back of my, (laughs) in my subconscious somewhere. Yeah. I see as part of the podcast, I try to direct people to see how art's related and where the thought comes from. So, and it's also interesting to consider that she was an immigrant who came to art later in life and then worked primarily in found objects. So you two kind of have this interesting parallel. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, in that sense, you know, there's a, a lot of, uh, um, a, a lot of similarity and I, I kind of, um, uh, I kind of like feel akin to uh, to, to that. Um, I got to tell you that Louise Bourgeois probably influenced me more than her. And she, there's another one that uh, she was an artist all her life, and she didn't become you know a big artist until she was old. Yep. And with her, I had the great pleasure of meeting her and actually going to her uh, studios and oh my god. I'm so jealous. Uh, she was. She passed. She passed away. But um, she was this tiny, tiny woman that carved marble, <laughs> which was like what? Yeah, and <laughs> her her work's all this kind of like play on like uh, like juvenile understandings of sexuality. I feel like Absolutely. it's kind of like playing with it, like a child kind of like plays with uh, an idea and integrates that into like a story. Right. She did a lot of um, a lot of things that have to do with family because of her own uh, kind of difficult background. Um, but um, also, I mean, by the time that I met her, she was much more um, uh, her stuff was much more abstract in a way. Uh, she worked with found objects, um, so there's uh, that connection where I just adored her work, and certainly it influenced me. Um, uh, but um, but she started to look at certain things, you know, that uh, uh, explore other things. One of the interesting things is one of the pieces that she made at the time that I was there uh, was these steps. And I, I forget the name of the piece, and I'm sorry for that, but um, pretty famous piece where it was um, a stair- like a staircase, um, but it was built in, in a box kind of situation. It's a real staircase in the sense that it went up and it's just like a, a the height of a normal staircase. But she goes, <laughs> she went to me, and and you know then these she made these giant wooden balls, uh, yes, which were incredible. And she made two, and they're at the bottom, and you know the meanings are uh, you know up to you to a certain degree. And uh, she told me she goes uh, when you go to the uh, uh, to the exhibit to the gallery, she goes. Go to the back of the stairs. There's a little door there. <laughs> and open the door, and there's a flashlight in there. And then look at what's in there. And I know nobody knew this. 
<laughs> wonderful discovery. And I went in. You, you know what the story is. You, you know very well that you're not supposed to touch artwork in exhibits or museums or art centers. And there I am trying to, in this opening, I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to open this door behind the piece. And eventually, you know, like uh, typical of all these openings, people are like, eating too much cheese and drinking too much wine, so they stopped paying attention to where I was, and uh, it was marvelous, you know, getting it directly from the horse's mouth, you know? Nice. So what was there? Uh, she had all these uh, all these things, all these uh, kind of found objects um, that uh, actually in that particular piece, uh, they seem to relate to, to her, you know, personal family and identity, you know, and what she's gone through her life, which was interesting enough. Mm-hmm. You know, they were like gathering of things, like some things were fabric, like made with fabric, you know, like uh, filled with something, and they were kind of uh, body-shaped. And she's done that before. Yes. You know, seen that in her art, uh, where she works a lot with fabric at a certain point of her art. Uh, so... Very interesting. Yeah, I've I've never, I have never, ever seen anywhere where it speaks about that door and what's behind there. I just think it's hilarious. Oh my gosh. So I feel very strongly that like very few um, people know about it. I know know that her assistant knows for sure. It's like this. I'm not sure. So do you think that that's important to that piece, that, like, nobody knows about it? Like, how does it change the context of it, that there's this secret there? Well, you know, like, one of the things about it that's, uh, of course, it's very powerful, is that this is a staircase that goes nowhere. So, yes. I mean, when you get up there, there's nowhere to go. <laughs> I mean, it's just, and actually, it's not, the way that um, she exhibited it, it's not against a wall. It's freestanding. So, you know, the concept is uh, that you get all the way up there and there's nothing else to do but come back down. Um, and there, there's no handrails either, so it's kind of frightening to go up there. Um, so it, that's part of it. And, uh, you know, because it's questioning what, what else is there. And then the... Um, the door and what's inside of that is uh, this hidden, uh, these things that uh, maybe the things that we keep inside that we don't share. Um, in this case, she shared it with me, which was amazing. Yeah. I'm uh, very privileged, to be honest with you. Yeah, I'm so I'm jealous. I'm very flawed. I, I always, like, I saw an interview with her, and I'm like, man, I want a glass of wine with that little old lady. And, you know. Okay, was... you want to hear something else that I have? Okay, let's go. <laughs> I don't even know why people do this with me, but she gave me a tape, and it's her rapping. <laughs> you have, okay, you've got to put that on YouTube. <laughs> it's a cassette, it's a cassette tape, which I just recently found, because I just took all these boxes out of storage, <laughs> and when I found it, I said, oh my god. So now i got to, like, buy a tape player so I can listen to it. You've got to, like, port that over digitally and be like, hey, just just put it up. Don't even ask her estate. I mean, I want to I hear Louise Bourgeois, like, because how old was she when she made a rap album? 
Oh, man. Well, well um, it was a rap song. But, um, uh, God, I mean, this is 1986, so she was already in, what, is 70s or whatever? Yeah, because, like, so, I guess she died in, like, the maybe. 90s, 2000s, and she was well into her 90s. Yeah, of course. So, um... That's amazing. I want to hear that. Why don't Why don't you have that? Ah! But you I, I, You have a treasure trove of crazy stuff like this. I know. Like when you When you die, like forty, fifty years from now, um, we're gonna have to start the like Nestor Museum of like amazingness. <laughs> donate it. Yeah, because you have donate like some, you some have museum. a lot of stuff. Like you like. You're like, I have original Ramones pins, and I'm like, I'm so jealous. <laughs> well, the funny thing with me is that it, it correlates with my art, you know, finding all of these found object things and stuff where, like, I'm just like this pack rat that never gets rid of things. <laughs> so, uh, luckily, you know, these things that I have, you know, like, uh, I never got rid of, you know, so, or lost, uh, which is probably more more than anything you know it's uh people you know boxes people throw out when they go through boxes you know because mm -hmm. you know they've been in the attic too long or something like that you know so i remember you used to always be like mail me um what is it uh that candy the little mints altoid tens you were like mail me altoid tens yes <laughs> so if you're yeah, listening to this you can you can mail nestor altoid tens he'll love you um and I think that, like, when I took your classes, you always, there was this balance of art history and art, and as we progressed through the sculpture classes, you would talk about, like, this kind of artist did this, this kind of artist did this. Um, and it really put, I always, after your classes, I developed this concept that an artist kind of works as a cultural historian, and that that comes from the world that has shaped them and that in some ways they have this very impactful and important thing to say about where society is now and that's actually kind of part of you know nearly 20 years later what led up to this uh, art history podcast is because I felt like uh, the public kind of needs to see that I, I agree with you and I think that also um, you know each generation needs to know about these things and and especially firsthand from people that you know have um, experienced it before um, so that they can really see you know where these things come from um, and you know then they can uh, create their own opinions or if you're an artist create um, whatever you know encouraging your vision uh, for this uh, these artwork <clears throat> but um, you can't help it right I mean you live uh, in a certain era, uh, and uh, things happen in that era, and things influence you, uh, and even if you don't want to talk about them in your artwork, it's in there, right? Yeah. So it does, it does influence you. Uh, you just might not, uh, you might not do this overtly. Uh, yeah, as a, as a female making art, especially the women that were at their prime in the 70s, if you talk to them about your work they're always like how's feminism influence this and it's like sometimes it's just like i don't want feminism to have anything to do with it but it always does like because yeah. how yeah. can i not that's such a big 
And I, you know, just like for you, I know you've talked in the past to me about how it's a struggle. Are you a Cuban or are you an American artist? Correct. And, um, you know, and that has a, you know, it's starting, believe it or not, to change and it's taking a long time, right? Um, it's that whole concept of, um, you know, being hyphenated. Um, so once, you know, if you, if you look at artwork uh, and you, let's say a painting and you go up to the painting and they have the little description uh, plaques and you see, you know, Willem de Kooning, American, you know, blah, 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 whatever the date they were born and the date they died. But you find that with ethnic people, uh, including African-Americans, like I just said, it would say African-American and then blah, blah, blah. Well, that in itself is limiting that artist. Because now you're splitting that artist's uh, identity between African and American. And so people start to cloak their opinions of the art um, with that kind of referencing. Um, so and basically it should be eliminated completely. And it should just be if you're African American, if you're Chinese, uh, whatever you are, it should just say American. Um, and I do think that that's a problem. Uh, the one thing that actually is a bigger problem, because it can't go away, is women. So women's names are women's names. Yeah. And so if you have women's names, you can't get away with being seen as uh, a woman. And those are the, uh, that's the only one that I see no solution, no solution to. It's. I think that we just have to grow as a culture. It's the end of the story. And I think that, and I love that you've said this with our current political climate, which I don't really want to get into politics, but maybe that's a way to look at some of the healing that we need to do, because that's something else that art can do. Like, if you're familiar with Mel Chen, um, who's a Chinese, an artist of Chinese descent who is from America, and I've heard him address this as well, but a lot of his works are these large uh, attempts to improve areas or enrich things visually. He works in Detroit a lot with like burned out buildings and uh, it, it can really improve the community like having this creative here who opens a dialogue with uh, urban children who would normally not be exposed to artworks or at least artwork that's on the uh, large academic scale and you know, it's this is where art can make the world better. If you want a cultural validation or a political validation for why we need creatives in the world, it's that kind of thing. Well, and, you know, I'm not going to get political, but it's the reality that um, we've come to a level where uh, money is very, very important. And the art itself is not being, uh, quite widely in the United States, not being appreciated as having any worth. And this is where the humanities come from. Uh, well, certain things don't have to make money. <laughs> and certain things uh, you, you fund because it's important. Artists are important. They say something about being human. They say something about the, the era that they're in. Um, they say something uh, about everything, the universe, uh, um, believe it or not, <clears throat> the, the position that we're in, uh, the aspects of the earth. Um, we know this from different uh, artists and, you know, ecological artists, um, biological artists, which is a very big art that has surfaced 
especially in the last um, 15 years. So and they are important. Artists are very important. They, they remind us that we're human. Uh, they remind mind us that um, uh, who we are as individuals, where our, our identities are, and also social commentaries. Um, and they don't always have to be um, political to be getting that across. Um, you know, aesthetics tell you something about us and the things we appreciate. So um, I very strongly, I'm very sad that the arts aren't being uh, funded as much as they should be. If you go to Europe, you see the difference. You really see the difference because, because over there, they certainly fund the arts quite a bit. If you go to Scandinavia, they, they fund the arts uh, greatly, and they understand it. Uh, it's only America that's having a real serious problem uh, with that. Well, well there, there's another reason I'm doing my podcast, maybe. If, you know what? If you're listening to this and you feel like you've learned something here, reach out in the comments. I think both Nestor and I would love to hear it. I'll share it if you have questions or want to know more about his stuff. Um, so let me t ask you this. Is there a place where people can see your artwork uh, online? Uh, yeah. Um, I, have a, I have a website. And um, actually, oh, and <laughs> I don't know the uh, URL. Uh, maybe I can send it to you. Uh, I'll put it in the show notes. Up. Yeah, do that. And you can put it in. It's actually also the URL is kind of long, uh, as they usually are. Is it your name? Yes, it is part of it. Yeah. And it's Wix. It's, uh, it's the uh, and, um, site that supports it. Cool. Do you want to talk about how you think the Internet's going to be the savior as art, kind of as a closing, or...? Sure. I mean, um, I also can use uh, music as an example, which is a great example, uh, which is uh, before, you you know, musicians had to rely on uh, the record companies. And the Internet was the one that broke that, uh, where now artists can uh, fund themselves in the sense of uh, they can post their um, their own um, songs or albums, and you can buy directly from them, uh, and they pay a small fee to whoever is... Uh, um, wh whoever is um, <clears throat> uh, um, providing Hosting. the site. Yeah. Co correct. And uh, so they have much more control over everything. Uh, they don't have record companies telling them what to do. Just the same thing with the artists. Uh, one of the things that happens with artists and galleries is that they tell them uh, whatever <laughs> whatever people end up like liking, then they tell them, oh, you got to do that again. And a lot of artists, you know, I, I would say, I would dare to say that the majority of them uh, go like, uh, well, this is one thing that I'm doing, and now I'm moving forward, <laughs> and I want to do something else, you know? So uh, uh, galleries would uh, not go along with that, let's say, and then you would get dropped uh, because of that, because then you weren't making, they weren't selling as much, for instance. Now it's not like that. Artists have direct access to the audience. And that helps them in that sense. And they can sell things without middle uh, people. Um, so and I think it's only going to get better. <laughs> and um, so that's what the Internet has brought. It brought an incredible freedom uh, and possibility for individual artists. Yeah, I would agree with you. And it opens it up to the world instead of your region. 
And that's true, exactly. You know, where people all over the world can come and look at it. Like, uh, do you know the South African, like, uh, rap EDM group, Diantford? Uh, no, actually. I think you'd love them. I'll send you a link. But uh, they they had been working as a rap group, and then they kind of produced this uh, sound that um, is very heavily dependent on, uh, like, Afrikaans and, uh, like, the rap that's going on in South Africa right now called Zeph. And... They produced these very well-produced music videos and took off like crazy. And it's great to see that happen because uh, I, th I think, you know, when I was like a teenager in the 90s, people would have been like, a rap group from South Africa, no way, you know? Or they'd have just exploited right. them, which is the other thing that ha used to happen in the music industry very badly. Yeah. Yep. So, and I believe... And also it, funding, funding... Funding is also uh, also help. Yeah, um, you know, this, the, when you ask for funding, uh, I know because I still have a lot of friends uh, in music, and that's the way they put out CDs. You know, they ask for money so that they can record and things like that, and people do it. Uh, and I have artist friends that do that too. You know, and they'll send the people that are funded, um, you know, uh, copies of their work or. Uh, some original work as, you know, a thank you. And I, I know a lot of ones, uh, the artists that do that. And so, you know, you have this uh, symbiotic uh, relationship, which is a fruitful one, uh, which was not happening before. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. And that's the beauty of things like Kickstarter and GoFundMe and all those crowdfunding uh, programs. There's even if you're starting a small business, you can... Uh, crowdfund uh, loans now or angel funding so that you can uh, put that together. And, I, you know, a lot of people diss on, quote, millennials, but I feel like that's the beauty they're bringing to the world, and it's something that's so magical. I feel like other generations should, like, shake their hands for it. Really, and really appreciate it, yeah. All right. Well, is there any shows coming up or anything you want to talk about or plug? Um, no, just um, keep being interested in art. Um, us artists appreciate it. Um, we're here to have a dialogue with uh, with everybody, uh, with the world. Yep. So go to my website. <laughs> go to your website. It's down in the show notes. All right. Well, thank you for this wonderful interview, Nestor. Um, I really appreciated having you on Art, I Swear. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Vanessa. All right. I would like to thank Joe Giggs for the intro and outro. Joe Giggs is a rock and DJ in New York City. Uh, all samples provided by Iridial's Conant Project. If you want to learn about number stations, check out the Conant Project. And everyone have a creative day. <laughs>